Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and welcome to Compliance Clarified, a podcast for risk and compliance professionals brought to you by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Each week, we discuss news stories and topical issues from our journalists and analysts in the United States, Europe, Asia, and Australia. I'm Alexander Robson, Managing Editor, speaking to you today from London, and I'm with Helen Parry, Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert, and Rachel Walcott, Senior Editor, both of whom also based in London. To kick off the first episode of Season 9, we're going to discuss the UK Financial Conduct Authority's enforcement strategy and the outlook now that its long-standing head of enforcement, Mark Stewart, has left. The FCA appointed Therese Chambers and Steve Smart as joint executive directors of enforcement and market oversight. Chambers has worked at the FCA for more than 20 years, while Smart joined from the National Crime Agency in June. The regulator has created a new legal division and appointed Stevna Bravna Roman, the FCA's general counsel, to lead it. This new team has a big job ahead. Enforcement is the last FCA division to undergo transformation, and it's not yet clear what changes will be made beyond splitting that executive director role and hiving off the legal division. And in line with FCA messaging, we can expect technology to continue to play a bigger role in the regulator's enforcement strategy. Chambers told the conference back in June that there was nowhere to hide with SMART, the NCA's former head of compliance. Quote, I would advise everyone to get their ducks in a row now, particularly given the extensive improvements we have made and continue to make in relation to data, technology and digital tools. I have many years of experience as a lawyer and investigator across the full range of the FCA's extensive jurisdiction. So between us, we have all bases covered, unquote, she said. She also implored firms and their lawyers to cooperate with the FCA. Quote, aggressive diversionary tactics may prolong the timeline, but they will not deflect us from our purpose and the extent to which they serve your clients' reputations and improve their regulatory outcome is interesting to consider, unquote, she said. And that comment touches on one of the FCA's biggest issues, the length of time enforcement cases take and the relative paucity of outcomes achieved. On top of that, the enforcement has been criticised in some recent judgments which highlight why cases take so long and some of the mistakes that the FCA is making. Rachel, if I start with you, what are some of the numbers this new team is facing in terms of caseload? And have measures the FCA has taken so far to speed up the enforcement process had the desired effect? After the last annual report and enforcement statistics were published, Lindsay Rogerson, our other colleague, and I went to see if things have been changing. And what we found is that as as of April 1st, uh, 2023, that's just at the beginning of the uh, FCA's new financial year, it had 591 open enforcement cases 
relating to 224 investigations. And a month later, as of June 30th, uh, data supplied to us in a Freedom of Information request showed the FCA had 577 cases open, having closed 37 cases in a month. For a little context, the FCA opened 100 enforcement cases and closed 107 enforcement cases in the 2022-23 financial year, so it was pretty even. We've noted in this podcast before that one of the things FCA watchers are expecting to happen is for cases to be reviewed and some closed without further action. That's because the enforcement pipeline is jammed. 577 cases and 200-odd investigations is a huge amount for a department the size of enforcement and market oversight, which is 621 people, according to the FCA's most recent annual report. One of the things the FCA hoped would speed up the enforcement process was to give fewer cases to the Regulatory Decisions Committee. The idea was to empower FCA directors to move ahead with certain kinds of cases without referring them to the RDC. The annual report shows 18 cases were referred to RDC and 38 were completed in 2022-23, which is down from 81 and 86, respectively, in the previous year. However, FCA data also shows that the time it takes to investigate and resolve or litigate cases remains stubbornly high. I'll put a link to the FCA metrics in the show notes, but for example, the mean average duration for a civil enforcement case is 80 months. Wow, that's a long time. Helen, there have been several high-profile cases recently which illustrates some of the problems inside the FCA's enforcement department. Tell us, uh, for example, about the Julius Baer case that the upper tribunal ruled on earlier this year. Yes, well, the Julius Baer case consists of three final notices against individuals. There's a final notice against the firm and three decision notices against individuals who then referred them to the tribunal. Now, the firm accepted that it was in breach of various um, principles and the individuals who were fingered by the FCA were very upset with the decision and they did take it to the tribunal and they completely won. And in the tribunal, there is a lot of discussion, rather negative discussion by the judge about issues, particularly with regard to delay, particularly with regard to changes in staff and problems of management of teams, and acutely with regard to failures in applying proper disclosure procedures. Um, the Julius Bear case was quite unusual in that it featured a client that was in an unusual and a tricky position because it was a nationalized former Russian oil company that fell out of favor with Putin and had most of its business had gone to Rosneft. But the, the rump of um, UCOS had been suing um, and, and, and achieving lots and lots of successful outcomes in lit international litigation over the nationalization. And it had a huge pot of money, which it had won in various arbitrations and litigations. But at the same time, it was in an unusual position with regard to sanctions and so on. And it had trouble 
finding bankers who were willing to take the risk of dealing with it. And when it came to Julius Baer, the fact that they were willing to um, pay rather large commissions to um, a Julius Baer-related finder, the, the tribunal said that that wasn't actually surprising given the unusual, unusual situation of UCOS. And the one of the major problems that the FCA had was that they had the wrong definition of recklessness. They found all the three individuals who they took action against had been reckless. And their definition of reckless involved a predominantly an objective test at what a reasonable person would think was uh, suspicious. But the court said that that was wrong and it did involve a, a, a subjective element. And the subjective element was very relevant to these individuals because there was failure of disclosure but when the disclosure was finally sorted, it appeared that many other people at the firm, including people senior to the, the individuals who were actually um, had action taken against them, knew lots about this um, problem. And uh, their reaction to it was such that the individuals probably wouldn't have felt completely suspicious because other people, including compliance, had thought everything was fine. The disclosure failings were significant because some of the material that the FCA failed to disclose to the applicants, to the uh, the individuals, actually undermined the FCA's case and it really should have been disclosed. And the FCA was criticised for having made such a basic error. And then they, were, they compounded that because when some of the material was looked at, they discovered that their argument about one of the transactions which they had said um, constituted, you know, um, an illegal payment. Uh, that that the information was wrong about that. But instead of backing down on it, they just substituted another transaction. And there were many, many aspects of that case that were really heavily criticised by um, the judge. It took twelve years talking about delay to bring the case, and also what they had done effectively. In dealing with the individuals, they had relied on two reports which the bank had commissioned from Eversheds and, uh, and, a, and a firm of accountants, Deloitte, I think it was Deloitte's and Eversheds. And what they'd done was they'd used that report. The FCA had done very little investigating of its own. They'd relied on the, the commissioned you know, firm report and they had taken action against individuals who'd left the company and there was clearly a conflict of interest because the interests of the firm were to blame individuals and, and say we well, had some systems failures, but these individuals were, were at fault. Um, and, and they didn't resolve that conflict at all. They just relied on the um, firm-produced reports. So in many, many ways, um, that judgment is quite critical of the FCA's handling management of the case. Yeah, I think they didn't interview some of the uh, individuals directly. They interviewed only one of the three. Only one of, out of the three was interviewed. And also they didn't do anything with the, the actual whistleblower, which was um, the, the, the account manager's boss, who had actually alerted the FCA to it all. And they, but they took no action against him whatsoever, although the, the tribunal said it was clear that he'd been very reckless. 
another element of the Julius Burr case was whether these individuals were lacking in integrity and therefore should be banned. Uh, Rachel, what happened here? Well, yeah, um, the point about lacking integrity was a key part of the Julius Baer case. The FCA argued that those three employees had acted recklessly, as Helen said, and therefore lacked integrity. But the judge said that it would be irrational to impose a partial or total ban on those grounds. Uh, he seemed to be of the opinion that they had demonstrated a lack of negligence and the judge told the FCA to go back and reconsider. And it's an interesting point f for many reasons, because integrity uh, and fitness and probity have been a big uh, theme for the FCA. And another case uh, to watch in this vein that I don't know when it's coming up in, in the upper tribunal, but it's uh, the Tom Kalaris case. Now, he's a former Barclays senior executive, and in February, the FCA rejected his bid to hold a senior management function role at his own firm called Saranac Capital. He's not at Barclays anymore, saying it was not satisfied he was fit and proper. He was the head of Barclays, he meaning Kolaris, was the head of Barclays Wealth at the time it raised equity from Qatar in 2008 and was involved in another FCA investigation into a former Barclays Wealth uh, COO called Andrew Tinney, who UK listeners who follow senior management stuff will know all about him. The FCA essentially claims Kolaris was not open and cooperative with it in its investigations into these two matters. And in fact, they said his answers were untrue and misleading. It's worth noting, though, that while the FCA fined Barclays for the Qatari fundraising misconduct, the serious fraud office got nowhere in its prosecution of Kolaris and other Barclays senior leaders. They were all, after two trials, they were all commit, acquitted of fraud. And like I said, uh, Kolaris has appealed to the upper tribunal, so we'll see what happens. And just to bring this bang up to date, the FCA today has launched a uh, consultation, which is part of its diversity and inclusion um, work. But part and part of this uh, consultation will be looking again at this fitness and probity and integrity theme. Now, just by looking over the consultation this morning, it seems like the FCA wants to be more prescriptive about what these terms mean in terms of non-financial misconduct like bullying, sex offenses, sex misconduct, and discrimination. And they're looking to make it really clear that what these kinds of issues would be part of what it means to lack fitness and proprietary and integrity. Uh, it's This move is likely a reaction to the cases I just mentioned, but also uh, it's in reaction to two very high-profile cases here in the UK involving senior financial services executives. Uh, in one case, uh, the senior individual was accused of multiple sexual assaults. Everyone in the UK will know who that is. And the other case 
uh, involves a senior banking leader with links to Jeffrey Epstein. And the more that comes out about these two cases, the more shocking they become. And the FCA is certainly alive to that and probably concerned that it's in a position where it can't be more assertive. Now, the consultation the FCA published today, which is Monday, the 25th of September, isn't proposing a zero-tolerance approach. It's aiming for serious misconduct and repeat offenders to be gotten rid of. And they're looking at ways that will make it easier for firms and the regulator to uh, sack these people on these grounds. But again, the upper tribunal cases show this isn't going to be straightforward. It's really hard to ban somebody for non-financial misconduct unless they've been convicted of a criminal offense. And I think that hurdle still might be there. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. Helen, you've written a number of articles about the Bluecrest case and probably know more about it than anyone who wasn't involved in it directly. What was that case about and what did it mean for the FCA? Yes, well, with Bluecrest, the FCA sought to institute a single firm redress scheme um, against Bluecrest as a result of what we thought was bad behaviour in the way that they'd run a couple of funds. They had an external fund um, that had particular um, traders uh, you know, running it and, and investing for it, and then it created an internal fund. And what it then started, which is only available to um, insiders, to, uh, to Bluecrest, and they used a sort of an algo, an algorithmic trading facility to to run the external fund. But they also charged a lot of fees to the external fund, more than they gained lots of fees from the external fund. It was generally considered that the external fund was being run at a completely lower level or standard to the internal fund. There was a conflict of interest and it wasn't being properly managed. And they tooth action against them initially um, under the OIREC procedure under Section 55 and they said that they should pay redress as a result of this um, own initiative requirement that the FCA was placing upon them and it was based on this uh, failure to manage this conflict of interest. Then it became, they went for a, um, a regulatory action against them and the decision notice said that they were in breach of Principle 8, which is the um, conflict of interest breach. The decision, uh, the decision at the tribunal, the tribunal said that the FCA had tried to amend its statement of case when it got pushed back massively by Bluecrest on its argument about conflicts of interest. And it had tried to amend its statement of case to include a breach of Principle 7 about communication, fair communication, and also a contract of business rule. And the 
Bluecrest was saying that they couldn't do the redress under the OIREC procedure. They had to use the actual redress specific procedure, which was under Section 404. And under the redress procedure, there had to be actionability. There had to be a case that could be actionable at law. And there wasn't a case that was actionable at civil law because they were only going for the breach of principle. They told the court told them they can't switch to suddenly put in a COBS thing when your case is basically on um, conflict of interest, which is a principle only. Now, principles, you cannot sue in a civil action for damages for breach of a principle. You can for breach of a rule, which is why they were trying to bring the rule in by the back door further along the lawn. And that, that was refused. And the court said, no, you can't. You were trying to completely tear up a carefully tailored redress system that was in the, the basic regulation rules and law, which was da um, there's damages under you know breach of statutory duty such as breach of a rule. There's restitution under the restitution provisions. There's compensation under the uh, uh, ombudsman scheme, uh, and so on. Uh, there's the ombudsman scheme, and there's also um, there's compensation if you're bankrupt. And there's also the redress scheme. But they were separate, different, all got their own separate regulatory and, and legal provisions. And the, the FCA couldn't go suddenly saying, oh, we'll do a redress scheme under OIREC. And that means we don't have to prove that there's been a breach of a rule. We can go with our breach of Principle 8 conflict of interest. So other commentators have said that this wasn't so much an error by the FCA as a but it was flying a kite in a way to see what would happen because they've got the new consumer duty coming in and perhaps they wanted to make absolutely clear whether they could go for a redress under the OIRA Section 55 for a breach of the consumer duty because, again, you can't go for a Section 138 civil action because, again, that would be a not, not a breach of a rule. So there have been some suggestions that that's not so much that there was something at fault, but they were trying a new strategy to see how it, how it was viewed at the court. It, was, it wasn't a straightforward judgment. I mean, the, the judgment's very long and it goes right through the history of financial regulation um, back to the early, not back to 86, but going back to 2000 and all the changes since in order to reach the right interpretation of the law. But it's a fascinating case. Rachel, what what kinds of enforcement actions has the uh, FCA taken this year? Could you discern any trends? There have been a smattering of enforcement final notices amounting to a little over thirty five million in fines so far this year. Potentially, Q four could be busy in terms of trying to get some more. Um, final notices um, and enforcement actions over the line before the end of the year. Um, most of what we've seen, there have been two um, anti-money laundering systems and control failings. There's been one uh, fine related to uh, COMEX fraud. and But there's also been a lot of activity around the um, IFAs involved in the British Steel Pension Fund uh, cases. Uh, there have been some fines and bans on six individuals associated with that. And another 
streaks kind of strands that it's been highlighting is it's uh, been going after crypto ATM operators in association with law enforcement. And this hasn't resulted in any, conv- oh, well, I'm not going to say it hasn't resulted in any convictions, but I, I think not yet. And it's a, these kinds of companies are a concern to the FCA because one, they're unauthorized and two, they pose a money laundering threat. So we'll have to see what happens there. Um, there are a few insider dealing cases that will be coming to court hopefully soon. Uh, I think it'll probably be at the earliest end of this year, uh, early next. But again, the FCA has seen mixed results uh, prosecuting insider dealing and market abuse. It has, though, been investing more in market surveillance tech to catch insider dealing and market abuse, but that's still in the works. They're still in the implementation phase for that. So I'm not sure when that new system is going to be up and running. Add to that, a lot of the insider dealing and market abuse threat now is apparently coming from criminal gangs, almost like a cyber crime type threat, which is what the FCA has been telling the National uh, Crime Agency, and I'll put a link to that report in the show notes. Yet we hear very little of that about that from the FCA, and perhaps that's part of what this new surveillance tech is trying to catch. Um, Again, we shall see. Helen, just before we wrap up this episode, can you give us an update on the FCA Enforcement Department's arch nemesis, Dharam Prakash Gopi? Yes, Mr. Gopi, who has been described recently in, in, a, in litigation in the summer by a judge as running a vendetta against the FCA. His background was he was a, an illegal money lender, lender, and his MO would be to lend money to extremely vulnerable people secured by charges on their property. He would then go to the civil courts if they didn't pay all the money back, possess the properties, and then rent them back to the borrowers. Um, There are over 400 of such properties, uh, and it was a very major business, and he ran it through lots of companies, but the problem was they didn't have any consumer credit licenses from the fair trading when he started, or from the FCA. There was one company which did have a license briefly, and he's been to court many times involving all his many companies arguing every time the same thing, that they were all agents of the one that had the license. A completely meritless thing. But he's been to jail for contempt of court. There was a serious crime prevention order against him. He was in breach of that. He went to court for that. He went to jail for unauthorized money laundering. But in while he's been in jail, he's been engaged in an endless, ruthless pursuit of the FCA running what the judge calls vexatious, meritless claims. And what they then did was they they issued a a general civil restraint order, which said he can't do anything, issue any proceedings whatsoever without first getting permission from a judge. And he's now gone to the the appeal court to appeal against having that order. And funnily enough, he's lost. Plus, it ran out, and at the case, the FCA asked if they could impose, please impose another general restraint, civil restraint order on Mr. Gopi, which the court was happy to do. So he's still 
restrained. He can he can bring actions, but he's got to get the judge's permission first. But uh, hopefully, that might be the end of his harassment. <laughs> well, I, I think we can agree. It's it's a pretty thankless task working in the FCA's enforcement division, and a and a tough job too. Right, that's it for this week's Compliance Clarified. Thank you very much, uh, Helen and Rachel. Uh, Your feedback is important to us, so please give us a rating on your podcasting platform of choice, or you can get in touch directly. Our contact details are in the show notes. For more information about regulatory intelligence, please search for Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence or check the show notes for a link. Thank you. Goodbye. Compliance Clarified. A podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.